Today, Andrew Jarman and Patrick Wong of Mercer and Glassdoor, respectively, join us to discuss how their employer's compensation data is sourced. I tried to ask them probing questions about how you, our audience, could make better career decisions, knowing what Andrew and Patrick know about your profession and the broader job market trends. This is a first for us as far as panel discussions go. If you enjoyed it, please let us know on our contact page and subscribe to the Accidental Engineer email list if you'd like to hear more. Enjoy the episode. Welcome all. Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today we are joined by not one, but two people. (laughs) Uh, Welcome uh, Patrick Wong of Glassdoor and Andrew Jarman of Mercer. Uh, Andrew, I guess, do you mind going first and explaining a little bit about who you are and, and what it is that Mercer does? Yeah, sure. So um, I've, I've been working at Mercer, which is, you know, a sort of broad HR consulting. Uh, we do both compensation and health and benefits and, and what we call wealth, which is, you know, sort of retirement and wealth management. Basically, anything that has to deal with, you know, keeping, attracting, you know, retaining and exciting your employee base, that's kind of where Mercer tries to position themselves. Um, I, I'm a senior associate there. I've been there for about seven and a half years now, joined right out of school. Um, Max and I were both alumni of Claremont McKenna together. Um, and so, so joined there and I, I've kind of been working my way up through sort of the consulting tiers in predominantly, I kind of cut my teeth in executive compensation and then sort of moved into what we call broad-based compensation, which is, you know, comp that affects the entire organization, not just the people at the top. Um, And then have also kind of expanded into, you know, some of the workforce analytics that we'll do for organizations on, you know, what drives turnover, do you have any pay equity issues, things of that nature. Um, So kind of a generalist, most people specialize a little bit more, but if I had to pick a specialization, it's mostly compensation. So as our audience can probably imagine, the theme of today's discussion is gonna be about compensation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, not exclusively to software engineering, which has been largely what we've covered in the past on the podcast, but, uh, I want to say quickly and introduce Patrick, uh, Patrick, do you mind introducing yourself? And, uh, I, am pretty sure perhaps all of our audience has heard of Glassdoor, but maybe for those who haven't, uh, giving a, a rundown of what it is that you guys do. Yeah, sure, Max, and thanks for having me. So for those who have never heard of Glassdoor, um, it's become one of the largest job sites in the U.S. Um, so in addition in addition to having um, so many job listings across uh, the country, we have um, a platform that is uh, open to receiving information about uh, what it's like to work at different companies. So we, um, we have reviews and salaries, and information about benefits. So as a job seeker, you have a lot of uh, comprehensive information going into um, applying to a new job and uh, having that information uh, with you going into that uh, interview or into your job searching process is really powerful. And so I've been with them for about three years now as a data scientist, and I've been working on the economics research group where we look at all that data that we get and we try to understand what's going on with the labor market. That, that is an awesome starting point for our discussion, which is on the topic of data and compensation data. Uh, 
I realize this is a relatively private subject, but to open it, open the eyes of our audience, uh, what kind of data do each of you guys deal with? Patrick, do you mind going first? Yeah, so like I mentioned, um, we have a lot of uh, anonymous salaries reported to Glassdoor. And with those salaries, we can uh, look at how wages are growing over time. Uh, we can see how those wages are related to uh, job satisfaction uh, in the review ratings uh, that we receive from our users. Um, and so making all these connections between um, satisfaction at work and how much you make in certain jobs uh, provides us with a, a very comprehensive view of you know, what's going on with the labor market. And um, a lot of that information can be helpful to job seekers. So Andrew, uh, Mercer does a lot of different uh, verticals, consulting-wise and compensation data-wise. Uh, what about you? You mentioned uh, starting with executive compensation, but what types of data do you guys work with? So, yeah. So, I mean, I would say that the first and foremost, kind of most important one, you know, most of the time we're called into a client that's got some sort of problem, you know, because if they could deal with it on their own, they wouldn't be reaching out for help. Um, so the, the first and most important data set that we're working with is their data um, and, you know, what they have and some have better data than others. And so that's always, you know, a piece of conversation as well, because if you don't know what's going on in your organization, it's really hard to kind of, you know, figure out what you want to do with it. Uh, beyond that, you know, if you're talking in the exec executive compensation realm, a lot of our best data comes from, you know, companies are forced to file um, proxy disclosures that detail very clearly the compensation programs for their top five executives. So we use that and that's, you know, very easy to validate and review. Um, but then we also have a lot of surveys that we administer by ourselves and we have a bunch of other different companies that we own that administer those surveys where they'll go out to companies either directly through their you know sort of back-end hris where you know they store all the employee data and kind of pull data that way or we kind of administer surveys as well where we'll say hey we've got these you know however many three thousand jobs or whatever we you know we have i've done a count recently um <laughs> which of your employees would map to this and what's their data? And then we can come back and say, okay, for this position, this is what the 25th, 50th, and 75th percentiles are of base salary. And here's how you stack up against that for your employees to kind of give them a sense of what the market is like. So if our audience hasn't caught on yet, both of you guys are awesome guests to have on because you're, both of your types of work and output that you guys provide to uh, your end customers <laughs> influences how everyone gets paid. <laughs> so one of the topics that uh, I would like to direct the conversation towards is selfishly for ourselves and for our audience, uh, given the data that you guys see in your day-to-day -day jobs, how, how can people best direct their careers to optimize for happiness or income or, or what have you? Uh, Patrick, do you mind going first? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So um, to start off with that, I would say that, um, you know, we've done some research uh, linking happiness and, uh, and income, uh, particularly with um, 
how it relates to job satisfaction, right? And there have been other research out there that have been done that shows that, you know, past a certain point, uh, you don't really, you're, you aren't happier uh, past a certain point of income. But of course, it is um, helpful to get to that point to, to begin with. And one thing that a lot of people have fear about uh, in the future is this whole wave of artificial intelligence, automation, kind of eating away at jobs. And um, what I'd have to say about that is um, automation is currently eating away at things that are typically repetitive activities um, that are in a predictive, predictable environment. Things like um, warehouse manufacturing or even food services. So to be able to avoid that, um, you need a job that either is something at the forefront of automation that's very technical or something that requires a lot of human judgment. So those are things like healthcare, um, social work, uh, consulting, and HR. So if you stick to those things, you can be sure to shield yourself from your job being automated someday. To contextualize the money happiness trade-off, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a study and it's kind of dated about that number, the income number where, where it kind of drops off getting paid more and being happier is something like 65K, not adjusted yeah. for cost of living or inflation since that study happened. <laughs> right, right. So that's uh, not accounting for um, inflation or living in an expensive city like San Francisco or New York. But again, that's not a very high number. Um, so once you hit that point, um, uh, then you know, additional income does not really have that much of an effect on happiness. Yeah. What, what about you, Andrew? What what are, what are some of the guiding <laughs> guiding conclusions to draw from some of the data that you've had visibility to? Yeah. Well, and, and I would just say as well, you know, the the whole happiness versus income issue is why a lot of organizations that we've been working with have been focusing more on what we call the employee value proposition or the EVP, which is basically saying, you know, what are our, what's our total rewards program, not just the salary and the bonus. And, you know, if you get equity or what the benefits are, but, you know, do we have flexible work-life arrangements? What are the perquisites? Different things like that. So it's definitely something that a lot of organizations are very um, focused on. From a strictly tactical, you know, how do I make more money in my career? Um, the 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 way you make the most amount of money, if you think about it, is by managing people, really. Because if you if you say, okay, I can be ten percent more efficient if I learn this skill set. If you can be a very compelling manager or, you know, at that level, you're probably, you know, director, vice president, things like that. And maybe you've got 20, 30 people underneath you. If you can make all those people 10% more efficient, you basically created, you know, two, three more employees, which is incredibly valuable for organizations. So at being a competent and successful people manager really kind of helps pick up your career as well as sort of kind of finding skill sets, you know, you can also kind of go and niche the niche route where you say, you know what, I don't really necessarily want to manage people. Uh, maybe I, I'm okay with a, a small team of one or two people, but I, I don't really want to 
go down that route. Instead, I want to focus on skill sets that, you know, I can be, you know, the, at least the best in my company at maybe ideally, you know, kind of nationally renowned or what have you um, in a particular area that's incredibly valuable to companies. So, you know, like in the tech world, we've seen, you know, data security, that's been one that continues to be very, very valuable. I, I'm less tied to the direct, you know, particular skill sets, but that's just what I see from the data, from what we look at it. But even as an individual contributor, even if you're deep down a technical path, you kind of cap out at a certain point in terms of how much money you can make. For sure. that I, I can attest to personal experience of going deep versus management. They're in software engineering career routes, there's individual contributor roles and then there's management. And that's the common path that you kind of have to choose between as you as you get several years into your career is how much longer do you want to be an individual contributor for versus being a multiplicative kind of a factor or role player as a manager. But I think it's to speak to the point that you brought up about uh, security roles in organizations and that being a high paying role. I, I just want to point out from personal observation that that really makes sense. Uh, news stuff aside, like the the Equifax hack, uh, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense that a data security person might get paid a higher uh, cash compensation because they, they kind of need to be incorruptible. <laughs> and they kind of, well, yeah. Well, and I was going to say as well, you know, it's one of those things where you can't just settle for middle of the road you know, because everyone's constantly attacking each other for the most part. So you want to get the absolute best that you can get. And it's so hard, you know, as you were saying, to get it right, that companies are willing to go above and beyond in order to, you know, feel like they've got the best talent there. And that that's an interesting space for like, I find it very fascinating, just because a lot of the people that are really successful in that area, come from extremely unconventional backgrounds and might have been black hats at some point. And it's just kind of a fascinating world. I, I always find it interesting. For sure, for sure. One other peculiarity to the software engineering job market, not necessarily the the, the line of security or data security is the phenomenon well-documented uh, called the Mythical Man Month, which is uh, a book written by a, a ex, I want to say IBM or Hewlett-Packard manager who made the observation that adding, let's say you have three months of work to produce some software um, with one person working on it, adding a second person doesn't increase the productivity by two. Uh, so Absolutely. There, there's some real funkiness to the management um, the management versus individual contributor trade-off. Uh, Patrick, is there, is there any, <laughs> any insights that the, the Glassdoor data that you work with gives into the, the mythical man month phenomenon in, in different, different uh, roles, maybe not necessarily limited to <laughs> software engineering? Um, no, I mean, I actually haven't heard that one before, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, but I would agree with Andrew that, um, you know, going into a, a more niche uh, sort of software engineering role, like in security, will definitely secure your your job um, uh, doing something that is clearly very important and is a technical skill that 
only a certain number of people have out there. Um, that's only going to continue to grow in demand. Um, one sort of additional benefit that um, we've sort of noticed with uh, technical positions like software engineers is that um, these are jobs that uh, everyone out there is hiring for. So it's not just uh, tech companies. You could work for a finance company. You could work for a transportation company. So your job is going to be applicable to a lot of different types of problems. And you're going to be able to uh, be exposed to a lot of different kinds of work, which is cool. Um, and another aspect of that is just being mobile. You can, uh, you know, these, these jobs are everywhere across the U.S., so you can move to, um, you know, if you've ever wanted to live, say, in Nashville, uh, Tennessee, it's very easy for you to be able to find a job out there. Hmm. Um, and then there's also the whole trend of becoming a digital nomad. You could go travel the world while working just on your laptop. That is a pretty and, and Patrick, phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. Andy. Yeah, Patrick, I was going to say that 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 point is so so true about, you know, everyone's kind of hiring for that role. And we've seen that with our clients that, you know, maybe not necessarily in the tech space, but they recognize how important that's going to be going forward for them. And we've actually had clients say, you know, I actually want to look at you know, the data for tech companies. I know I'm not a tech company, but for these particular roles, that's the market we need to compete in. Um, and, and it's sort of a ubiquitous thing. You know, they're most in demand at tech companies because there's the most direct translation to value that they can generate. But, you know, especially you mentioned financial services, that's a huge one that's, that's popping up with all the FinTech um, going on there. Yeah, is, absolutely. Is there any element of, uh, credentialism that could help people's careers along? Is, is that something that your guys' data sets have visibility into is whether getting that graduate degree will, will, you know, bump people's compensation higher in a meaningful way. That's, that's worth the tuition, of course. Either of you. I mean, favorite. I, I, I yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, we kind of are sort of agnostic to a certain extent about how you acquire the skill set for the most part. Um, I, I think that, you know, and I've seen this play out in my own career with other folks that, I, that I've that i worked with and just in broadly, I think graduate school can be really helpful if you're trying to go down a really deep technical route that can be useful as well as say you're coming from a very unconventional background maybe or, you know, you were an individual contributor as an engineer or something, and you want to go into, you know, learn more business management, kind of up your game in that respect, then an MBA can probably be valuable for you because it can sort of say, hey, I've credentialed and I've spent the time to get to know this a little bit better. But if you already kind of ha are adept in those skill areas, I don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze all the time. Uh, to, to go down that route. <laughs> what, what about the Glassdoor data set, Patrick? How about, how about uh, is it, do you think yeah. for, for certain careers that, that grad school uh, makes sense or has a material yeah, impact would, on income? Yeah, I would agree with Andrew that, you know, uh, unless you're going into some deep, uh, very technical type of research work, um, you know, I mentioned artificial intelligence. That's a field that's hiring uh, professors um, from universities because they have like the best 
um, domain knowledge on this right now, and as well as their PhD level students. Um, so unless you're trying to go after something very deep and technical like that, um, I would agree that you don't really need um, that graduate degree. What we sort of look at or sort of pay more close uh, attention to are skills. Um, and I would agree, again, that um, for the most part, um, in my perspective, I would be agnostic uh, if I were hiring um, about some, where someone uh, uh, learned those skills from. Uh, but the skills are more, I think, important than, say, a certain degree from a university. Goddamn, I got to get you guys to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe the next topic it'll come up because uh, one of the one of the recent news events that I think our audience deserves to to be more familiar with, and perhaps we could get your guys's opinion on, is the new California salary transparency laws that came into effect in the last year uh, that prohibits employers from asking prospective candidates for jobs, what their salary history looks like. And the reason this law was pushed in California, at least, was to aid women who have a history of uh, lower compensation than their male counterparts in the same roles. Uh, and because once an employer knows a candidate's salary history, it depresses that candidate's ability to negotiate for better pay. So it it, by by concealing people's salary histories through law, the policy goal is to help women get better, get get more equal uh, pay. <laughs> Patrick, do you think that do you think it'll work? <laughs> I hope it does. Um, I really like uh, this new bill, and um, particularly, I think that that recruiters have had a lot more power uh, in their position. And, you know, these employers can take advantage of people who aren't used to negotiating. I can say for myself and for some of my friends um, that we've been taken advantage of at certain times. So I think that, um, you know, this is great. It levels the playing field. Um, but I also think that this is a win-win for both employees and employers. Uh, we actually uh, uh, had some research come out uh, last month that we shared on our blog at Glassdoor that um, where we shared uh, actually six different uh, independent studies that were based on Glassdoor reviews and they all pointed to the financial value of investing in better company culture uh, and making employees happier. And one of those factors is, of course, pay. So if you pay your employees better, there's a good chance that they'll be happier. Uh, pretty <laughs> simple, right? Um, but the interesting about that is that that can actually translate into better uh, business results. We see that when we correlate uh, some of these um, uh, satisfaction measures with uh, financial uh, performance in the stock market. So if you have happier employees that are paid well, then you can expect better business results 
in the market. So I think it's a win-win. So I want to address this question to both of you guys. I'll, I'll let Andrew answer first real quick, which is that one of the realities of the job market of recent months and years has been that salary growth hasn't kept pace with the overall uh, economic growth and that uh, real wage growth hasn't gone up very fast despite uh, the stock market going up a lot uh, and other asset classes getting much more expensive. So I'm wondering if you guys have your own theories about why why real compensation for people out there in the United States specifically isn't going up despite uh, what you're, what Patrick's mentioning about it, um, it leading to higher employee productivity and output because they're happier. Uh, Andrew, do you have any any theories about what's going on with with <laughs> domestic uh, compensation trends? Well, yeah. So, I, and I'll, I'll I'll address just the the California piece first. I mean, um, and, and I'll try and tie that together, uh, as well with, you know, why we're not seeing as much broader movement. Um, I I think, and, and, you know, that we're seeing this legislation, you know, kind of, you know, generally more kind of blue states are kind of doing this, but, you know, I think it's been passed in New York as well. I think it's incredibly admirable in its aspirations. Uh, the challenge becomes, you know, once you're part of the company, they know how much you're making. Um, so, you know, as you start to think about how you can facilitate that, that's where, you know, as Patrick mentioned, companies investing in their culture, especially amongst tech companies where this has been a huge, you know, we've done a ton of work in sort of the pay equity space and, you know, how do you foster an environment where women can feel comfortable advocating for themselves and they don't feel like they sort of need to, you know, for lack of a better words, be a man in order to, um, get what they want, um, out of their careers, depending on where you look, it's actually been a a pretty good decade. You know, if you're in a management or executive role, you know, we've seen the market moving somewhere between four to 7% annually, uh, Mm -hmm. depending on the compensation element. And then especially in, you know, hot, what we would call hot jobs, sort of some of the technical skill sets we were talking about earlier, those have done immensely well. Um, but then, you know, when you pull back the lens a little bit, it's a sort of, sort of how the stock market has created uh, a lot of inequity in terms of wealth generation, uh, same deal in the, um, in the labor market. And, uh, you know, that, that the challenge is going to continually be, pa- Patrick brought it up earlier, just around automation. That's always going to put a lot of pressure on workers where, you know, if you pass, you know, say, say a company says, you know, we need to pay $15 or a, a location says that now you've got things you can turn to. Maybe that automation starts to look a little bit cheaper and you've got a McDonald's that's got self-serve kiosks all of a sudden. So, you know, workers maybe feel a little bit on the edge and maybe aren't as, you know, forceful in advocating for higher compensation because they're concerned that their employers will turn elsewhere. Patrick, do you have any any theories about why uh, wage or salary growth hasn't kept pace with like the stock market, for example? Yeah, so definitely. Uh, I also wanted to add uh, a little bit about the gender wage gap that uh, Andrew mentioned. Um, we we did a study ourselves looking at our salaries, um, our salaries data, and uh, we also see like a seventy six um, two dollar gap. And then when you account for uh, things like job title and seniority, location, 
all those factors, uh, we actually still found a 5% gap, which is pretty significant when you think about it. That's saying that, you know, um, a software engineer in San Francisco, um, maybe just right out of uh, college, uh, that salary might differ by 5% between um, a man and a woman. So I hope that this uh, new bill um, does sort of uh, rectify this problem a little bit. Uh, But moving on to um, theories about why wage growth is sort of slow, um, there are definitely a lot of theories out there. Some of it is, um, it might be that, um, you know, wages are shifting more into uh, benefits, uh, like Andrew had mentioned. And one of those be- uh, benefits is healthcare. And we know that healthcare costs have definitely been rising over time. And so that's becoming an, an increased cost to the employer, and that's becoming more valuable to the employees. Um, another thing goes back to this idea that once you make a certain amount of money, um, that additional dollar, the worth of that dollar sort of diminishes over time or over, you know, additional income. So as that happens, you start to value other things. Uh, Something that you guys mentioned was parental leave. So, you know, if you had a baby recently, would you rather work for, you know, another like five, 10% of pay, or would you rather, you know, take those hours and spend it uh, with your newborn? Um, So this shift from wages to benefits is something that a lot of people think is the reason for such sluggish wage growth. Could could another aspect of the the shift or or growth of wage or salary showing up in in benefits be due to the diminishing returns of paying people more cash and and there being a, a progressive tax rate and it just being more tax efficient to give people benefits that aren't uh, income either? Yeah, that's. That's definitely another side of it is just tax savings. Uh, You know, uh, many, uh, Andrew might be able to confirm this, but I I believe that many of these um, benefits are essentially tax-free. So, you know, if you asked uh, an employee whether they'd like to receive, you know, $550 in wages or $10 in benefits and things like, parental leave and healthcare, which one would you choose? So um, again, it's beneficial to both the employer and the employee. Andrew, is that true yeah. that some of this is tax efficiency? It, that's that's definitely a component of it. Um, that like, it's kind of the way things were sort of structured. And that's why most of the time in order to get decent benefits, you need to have a job because it, and I may be misspeaking on, on the exact tax components of it. But uh, my understanding is the organization actually gets to, they get to write off what they're spending, but then you think as an employee, you don't actually always see what your employer is contributing uh, or paying in order for you to get the benefits that you get. Um, And that's actually why a lot of organizations have started to go to more of this total rewards philosophy. And like, you know, how can we take everything that we're doing for our employees and make that as clear as possible and explain why maybe in some areas we might be a little under market versus other were over market. And, and part of that is, you know, saying 
okay, you, you, you just, all you know as an employee for the most part is how much you have to spend every pay period on your benefits, your vision, your dental, all, all that good stuff. But then, you know, when the company says, hey, by the way, we're paying this component as well, maybe that starts to make folks think a little bit like, hey, you know, I, I actually do value what, what's being done here. And I, I don't know if it's quite the same calculus as $5 versus $10, but if you said, I can give you $5 and you don't have to pay tax on it and it's going to come in the form of benefits, or I can give you $5 and you're going to get taxed 20, 30% on that, um, which, which one are you going to prefer? Uh, de depending on the trade-offs, and that's why most organizations kind of just target median on just raw health benefits, um, is because sometimes it's really hard for employees to tell the difference um, between what one company will offer versus another, versus when you get to perquisites, like, you know, there was a, there's, there's a service that lets um, mothers that are kind of traveling uh, they have the service where you can actually have, you know, ship your breast milk back to your home from wherever you're traveling from. They'll like pick it up and overnight it. Whoa. So, you know, like these, these things that like you think about it and you're like, wow, that's really cool. Um, but these different things that that's, that's different, that's distinguishable. And some of those, like, I'm sure that's fairly expensive, but some of the perquisites that companies can offer don't actually cost that much money and they can be, perceived as being very, very valuable to employees. Yeah, this yep. is definitely true in the Bay Area. <laughs> there, I mean, <laughs> and Andrew, no, I would uh, just add um, a bit about um, the preference aspect, you know, what would the employee pick uh, if they were given, you know, like the choice between uh, more wage or more benefits. So Glassdoor actually conducted a survey, um, we, we called it our employment confidence survey. And we actually found that almost 80% of the workers that were surveyed said they actually prefer new or additional benefits to a pay increase. And of course, that's, you know, dependent on a lot of things like exactly how much of an increase. Um, but these benefits like you're talking about, um, you know, it's hard to place a, a value on some of these things. Um, but some of it can add a lot to uh, to the value of an employee's uh, total reward package. Uh, for example, just speaking from uh, my experience at Glassdoor, in Mill Valley, where our office is uh, located, we have free lunches, and that's a huge benefit. And it doesn't cost uh, the Glassdoor that much money, but it saves me time from having to go out and find a place to uh, get lunch and it just makes my day a lot more efficient and I can get back to work uh, right after having my lunch. It, it makes uh, it makes it a lot harder for candidates to compare offers as apples to apples the more the more non-cash components there are to, to people's uh, compensation. That's for sure. And there, there is a little bit of a flip side to that too, you know, cause the, 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 the ideal, and, you know, we actually, we had a bunch of people that were getting picked off by Google. Um, when I, when I had just started at Mercer, this would have been like 2011, 2012, around that range, you know, every, they were, they were hiring like crazy, especially, you know, 
folks in HR from consulting. And you wouldn't believe how many people I heard talk about, you know, well, actually, you probably would believe, uh, but just the, the value that, as Patrick noted, that that's placed on some of these benefits, um, which, which I might actually call more like perquisites. And that's one of the interesting things about that topic. And we get into this with comp and HR all the time is words mean different things to different people. And so if someone says, I want more benefits, they might be thinking of vacation or, um, you know, these perquisite type of deals that we're, we're talking about. But then the other thing I was going to say is there's a, there can be sometimes a sort of a negative flip side if you're not managing your corporate culture effectively, which is that these benefit or perquisites that you're getting, you know, the dry cleaning or a gym and all, you know, daycare it also kind of takes away a lot of excuses that employees maybe used in the past in order to kind of step out and, you know, experience life outside of the company for a little while. You know, if, if you can no longer say, Hey, I got to go run some errands. Cause then you say, well, we can do everything for you. You can, you can sit back down and keep working. That is literally one of the, one of the talking points that Google recruiters uh, use utilize in, in discussing the compensation package they offer to candidates which is that they they literally take out a calculator and describe the the cost that they're saving these candidates by offering free free meals. <laughs> it's it's part of the part of the negotiation process is the employer in this case Google literally itemizing all of the perquisites as you describe them to come up It's with. a real-time total rewards calculation because you're saying how much do you usually spend on lunch and you can just do the math form right there and say okay well now you're going to add 10% more on top of whatever you know we're paying you or whatever it ends up being and that can make you know that just that makes it so much more real versus like you were saying otherwise you're just kind of saying like okay you got these nebulous packages when it comes to real world things I think most people appreciate the value of that that's why like you know the dry cleaning the the daycare there's the convenience and then there's the cost but then when you get into benefits where it's like okay this cdhp has me paying you know 50 percent less as the premium or something you know just it gets super convoluted super fast when you get into healthcare. and sometimes i think most people just throw their hands up and say gosh i really hope that this company has <laughs> has good benefits because i have a hard time telling outside of a direct comparison to wherever i was working beforehand yeah, healthcare benefits deserve their own episode. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank both you guys, Patrick, Andrew. Thank you both for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, Max. Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Andrew and Patrick and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of video interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones.